Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut is among states leading the way on changing public schools curricula. The change is meant to help students from different backgrounds better understand themselves and the communities that have been marginalized. The latest example is the passage of a bill by the General Assembly this month that adds Asian American and Pacific Islander studies to the state curriculum. Awaiting Governor Lamont's signature, it requires local and regional school boards to incorporate AAPI studies into lessons by the 2025 school year. Today, where we live, we talk about the grassroots efforts happening to support teachers incorporating these new lessons, and we learn how input from students and scholars are informing the work. Coming up, we hear from students and a teacher in Bridgeport who are studying Vietnamese-American Tibui's graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do. It focuses on her family's life in Vietnam, their journey as refugees to the U.S., and the effects of displacement on them and the relationships they have with one another. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is JHD, Jennifer Hakila Diaz, Chief of Talent and Operations at New Haven Promise and current activist and residence at UConn's Asian and Asian American Studies Institute. Their residency will support K-12 through teacher outreach and resource development for the Make Us Visible CT campaign. This is building capacity in the Connecticut school system develop a robust and inclusive Asian American and Pacific Islander or AAPI curriculum. And as we've talked about on the show before, Make Us Visible CT is a grassroots organization that really led the charge for the introduction of AAPI studies in Connecticut public schools. JHD, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So this is really exciting and empowering work, uh, learning about the efforts uh, that you're helping lead uh, with these teachers and students. Can you tell us first, you know, how many schools are participating and how did this coalition start? Right now we have, just for this particular unit of study around the Bui's The Best We Could Do book, we have 10 schools participating, 10 teachers and all of the classes that they teach. And those schools are um, across across Connecticut. Can you tell us more about uh, where in, in Connecticut and when we think about the selection of this book, why this book, JHD? Um, there's so many reasons why this book. Um, I mean, I think I think it's an incredible book, both in terms of text and visuals. Um, the author really, uh, I think it's one of those books that you you can read it so many times and still get something new and beautiful and devastating from reading it. Um, it's a text that's accessible for lots of people of lots of ages. Um, so not only are high, not only did high school students read it and are reading it right now as part of this project, but 
Um, there were also college students who were reading the book as well because we were we were able to get the books through um, this big read that Eastern was doing. So this was also in partnership with Eastern and with UConn and and some other um, some other organizations and professors. Now you mentioned the ten schools. So when we think about uh, schools in Hartford, Bridgeport, East Hartford, Naugatuck, uh, down in the New Haven area, and these are classes high school uh, high schoolers studying maybe creative writing or, or leadership. A majority of them, I understand, are, are students of color. And when I talk about this mandate that the governor is expected to sign, this is not, a, I guess, a check the box uh, idea of what well, we now need to require particular studies. I wanted you to maybe explain more about um, you know, the work that's being done that's going to help develop this curriculum that will be, um, you know, again, seen in schools by the 2025-26 school year. Yeah, our approach in this work is to really do it in a culturally sustaining way. So um, the teachers who are involved are teachers who are um, always seeking to grow more in, in their culturally sustaining practice. So when I say culturally sustaining, I mean being student-centered. Um, thinking about education is not something that just happens um, in a school building or in a classroom, but understanding that living is learning. Um, so really affirming and valuing um, what students bring to the classroom, what their families have taught them what their caregivers, what their communities have taught them. So all the things that students bring. And so the work that I've been doing with these teachers, facilitating with these teachers through this teacher community of practice this year has really been focused on, you know, knowing the text really well, um, being really strong, uh, strong teachers in that way. And then also being culturally sustaining and thinking about how do I, how do I make this text something that students really connect with and, and, um, and they bring what they have um, to the text, to the discussions, um, to, the, to the interrogating that they're doing in the classroom, um, and then to all the different projects that we're trying to do across schools, um, whether it's the dialogues or, or the art project that's just launching right now, actually, as we speak. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we've mentioned Tibui a couple of times, again, the author and illustrator of this graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do. I understand that she was an educator herself, and, and a quote that stood out to us is that um, she hopes the storytelling problem of how to present history in a way that is human and relatable and not oversimplified. And so when we think about that quote and what you're hearing from these teachers and students about how they're drawing uh, their experiences, you know, into these conversations, uh, so many themes that are coming out of this book, JHD, what do you think about that? I'm sorry, can you say that question again? <laughs> I was, um, the quote that really stands out to us, I'll read it again. Uh, Tibui uh, talks about, you know, she hopes this book will help solve, quote, the storytelling problem of how to present history in a way that is human and relatable and not oversimplified. So what you had just shared about these, these classes that are studying the book now, the input that teachers and students are giving uh, you related to what their experience have been and how they bring that into the classroom to talk about these themes. Yeah, at the beginning of the year, we, um, and I, I did not construct these, but we had various 
professors and folks create these awesome curriculum resources to um, to show them, I mean, many of the themes that could be um, discussed and, and analyzed in the text. Um, I believe there were at least a dozen that were just named in, in the documents that we shared with teachers and, and used. Um, yeah, I think I, I really agree with that quotation about, um, especially about the part of not simplifying things, right? I think if we're trying to make sure that the learning that students experience is is truly reflective of them, and also um, and also reflective of of our world at large. Then it needs to be more complicated, right? Um, there need to be more stories. There needs to be more. There needs to be more um, nuance. And the, this book in particular is is so human and is is so relatable. Um, I don't think you have to have uh, parallel experiences or to the characters. Um, to to feel what I was saying before about the the beauty, the devastation, all all the things that the book um, lets you experience when you're reading it. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking when I was reading uh, this book, you know, my parents uh, were immigrants, not refugees. But even the the question that Tibui raises about you know why she um, started this oral history, you know, to find out more about her her family's story, you know, to maybe um, be able to develop more of a connection uh, to her parents. And I was thinking about, you know, the things that we learn um, or maybe ask ourselves about maybe our, our parents' upbringing, but those questions may not come to us until we ourselves are parents. And so I thought that was uh, interesting, as you just mentioned, not necessarily having a parallel experience, but um, so many questions that this book raises, JHD. Yeah, I can relate to that personally. Um, there's a lot of questions that I've, I've never asked my own mother about her immigration story. Um, and sometimes I think it's been a little bit because um, I don't think she wants to share, but sometimes I think that's also an assumption that I'm making. But yeah, I think the older I've gotten, I think one way I relate to the book too is um, through parenthood, right? So the older I've gotten the, now as a uh, parent of young children, I've, I've started to, yeah, the questions never go away. You just have more mm -hmm. and more questions the older you get, I think. Mm -hmm. And when we think about the themes in this book, uh, you know, the, so many uh, stories uh, that in the last, uh, you know, last decade or more, we think about refugees that are coming to the U.S. Uh, and they all have different experiences uh, depending on the conflict that they're fleeing, but maybe helping students also um, develop empathy uh, when they think about and examine uh, these stories, JHD. So again, when we're talking about uh, being culturally responsive, um, you know, what are some of the discussions that uh, you know, you're hearing from teachers and students as they work through uh, this book? I mean, one's, one thing that I heard in particular that was, that was so interesting to me um, was uh, in the fall, one of the teachers um, was able to start the book uh, with her students. And, you know, they thought of their school community as being a pretty inclusive and welcoming place. And through the reading of the text, um, students and, and the teacher found out that um, there was a family at their school that was a refugee family and they had not known the entire time. And that family had been a part of the school for several years. Um, and 
I think this, the student, I mean, I'm probably not going to get all the pieces correct, but from my understanding, the student didn't share that piece of their identity with people because it hadn't come up. Um, and I think that, that it, the teacher's reflection um, and the conversations that came from that um, just made people in the school realize, you know, we, we thought we were being inclusive and we thought that we were um, being welcoming. And, um, you know, not that anyone should be forced to share any particular piece of their identity, um, but the fact that the student hadn't shared that part of their family and their identity, um, it, it got people really reflecting on um, the fact that years had gone by and, and that part of the, that person's story had, had never been shared. And I, I think that, um, I mean, that's, I think that's part of being culturally sustaining or being an anti-biased, anti-racist educator is that it's, it's not something you ever get to, right? It's something that's like a lifelong commitment that you're always um, trying to, to be more of and to become more of. Hearing JHD Jennifer Hakila Diaz here on Where We Live, Chief of Talent Operations at New Haven Promise, and current activist in residence at UConn's Asian and Asian American Studies Institute, as we learn about how their residency is uh, working to support uh, teacher outreach and resource development as we look forward to this uh, mandate that will change curricula in Connecticut public schools to include Asian American and Pacific Islander or AAPI curriculum. Uh, you're also a steering committee member of Connecticut's anti-racist teaching and learning collective. And I understand you were involved in the development of the Black and Latino Studies course being piloted this year, also rolling out across Connecticut high schools next year. And so can you talk about those important links uh, between these efforts to build capacity in schools for this change in curricula at JHD? Yeah, I mean, for me, involvement in both uh, both the, the course, the Black Latinx um, excuse me, Puerto Rican studies course and in this Asian American studies um, curriculum building it is really about making sure that um, the student organizers who've been involved in both um, are seeing what they want in the education that they believe that, that um, all young people deserve. Um, so I think folks really want to see this, see this anti-racist approach to it. They want to see that we're, we're not doing some kind of um, fun facts compilation, right? Um, or something that's just all, all trauma-based history. Um, they want that complicated history. They want um, it integrated. Um, and then, I'm sorry, what was the other part of your question? Well, we think about, again, what you were just touching on, the integration of the Black and Latino Studies course being piloted um, and the links to build capacity to have these kinds of conversations when you're thinking about changing curricula. Yeah, so making sure, like I said, the, that the student voice and the student needs are being addressed. And that's an ongoing thing, right? That's not just a... So I was part of the, the focus group work for... Um, for the Black Latinx uh, Puerto Rican Studies course. And, um, you know, students had been part of organizing and passing the bill. And then students were, students and families were involved in the, the focus group interviewing that we did. Um, 
before doing the curriculum and course development. Um, but that's like an ongoing thing, right? We should still be collecting ongoing their feedback um, because the this is a, there, there's no one size fits all for any of this. Um, we're talking about over 200 um, public high schools in Connecticut in very different communities. Um, so that piece is is really important, and that's been something that I've been really committed to in, in all of all of this work. And then the other piece is the the teacher development, meeting teachers where they are, um, because there's a lot of ongoing learning um, and a lot of learning that is different than what's been expected of teachers in order to to teach courses to integrate things that you didn't learn in school either. I mean, I didn't learn much Asian American studies in school. A lot of it has been through self-education um, and then getting to meet incredible people who have developed expertise and sometimes just getting the opportunity to just listen to them tell me. Um, I didn't grow up in Connecticut, so a lot of my learning about the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in Connecticut has been through listening to people tell me stories. Um, and so teachers need that ongoing development and need lots of different ways to get it. And while some things, you know, everyone's going to need, for example, content that they didn't get going to school, um, all of us need different things in terms of um, where we are with our own identity development, um, with our own practice to, to help us. So being able to meet people where they are, um, that's that's a really tall charge. It can be done. Um, I mean, I think we we're seeing some of that in the work that we've been doing this year with the community of practice. Um, while there are many similarities in the group of teachers, the 10 teachers that I've been working with, there are a lot of differences in terms of what they need, where they're starting from. I mean, also what courses they teach. Um, and, and then, you know, the contextualization, the contextualization of it, of the learning to, to the community in which they teach. So there are a lot of needs, um, a lot of strengths too to build off of, but um, I think the the teacher professional development, that ongoing um, development is is so crucial to making sure that, um, that we all get it right when we're working with our students. You're hearing JHD, Jennifer Hakila Diaz, again, here on Where We Live, Chief of Town and Operations at New Haven Promise, the current activist and residence at UConn's Asian and Asian American Studies Institute. We heard them talking about, uh, again, these classes uh, that are studying this graphic memoir, the best we could do. We're going to hear from a couple students and a teacher at Bridgeport, again, one of 10 classes studying the book. Again, they're helping develop strong guidelines and resources for teachers as this Asian American and Pacific Islander curriculum mandate expected to begin in 2025 uh, rolls out. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. T. Bowie's graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do, winner of an American Book Award, illustrates her family's story spanning three generations, including their journey as refugees from Vietnam to the United States. The book is being studied by public school students in 10 classes around the state as a coalition of teachers, scholars, and staff help develop a robust and inclusive curriculum in line with legislation to require Asian American and Pacific Islander curriculum in Connecticut public schools by the 2025-26 school year. Joining us now is a teacher and students from Bassett High School in Bridgeport. On Zoom, Ricardo Alvelo, an English teacher at Bassett, and two of his students, Destiny Melendez and Jeanette Espinoza. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? It's going well. So, Ricardo, I'll start with you. I mentioned that you're a teacher at BASIC. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this work uh, that we learned from JHD. Yeah, I think JHD uh, set the table perfectly. JHD uh, has been a mentor for me since I started teaching about four years ago. Um, I'm born and raised in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I always just wanted to come back and, and help and, and learn, especially uh, these types of books and subjects, especially after going to college and recognizing uh, how much of our history is whitewashed and how much isn't given to us. Um, and I've been linking up with JHD ever since, and they've been pushing me to just try different things and, and stay on the constant road of trying to be a, a better educator, trying to constantly learn um, and make sure I'm passing on to my students. So that's basically how I got involved with the work. I understand you've been teaching English for four years. Uh, this book is a graphic novel format. And so I'm wondering uh, when you think about uh, incorporating this book into your class, you know, what's what stood out to you and, and how are students responding? Um, the gra graphic novel format again, is something I, I was first introduced to in college, and I, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was something that uh, was stimulating in a way that a regular book can be, but the way a panel can sit with no words and still have the same power where you can add the words to it um, was striking to me. And when JHD showed me the best we could do, uh, I was taken away straight from the, the first chapter. It was outstanding to see how they can encapsulate motherhood and family and all these themes in, in just one chapter. And I was really excited to show it to my students because I think it was unfiltered. It was real. It was raw. And it was something they could connect with. And from showing them just from the first chapter, it's been a, a beautiful journey to 
have them again connect with their own identity start to reach back into the past and recognize how did we get here how did our parents get here uh because in some ways it's very visceral it's very much like this story um and but the differences also stick out um and how they can compare those so i i love the the format and i think the book has been so great especially after the pandemic as a way for kids to get back into reading because a lot of them haven't read uh, a book in a class physically in a long time so i'm thinking back to my high school english classes and we never uh, talked about or saw a graphic novel incorporated in uh, you know english class uh, for me and so is this the first time that you've been able to incorporate this format ricardo no, uh, actually not. From my first days of being in here, I've been tr trying to get different grants and different books in here. We've read um, Nat Turner by Kyle Baker, which is like a slave narrative format where there are no words at all, just the graphic novel. Um, trying to get a whole bunch of graphic novels in here because I, I think it links to the way children in this generation maybe process information. They're constantly connected. They're constantly seeing pictures along with text. Um, so I wanted to, and I noticed right away when I would give a graphic novel or what they were reading on their phones were graphic novels. They were reading webtoons and these other formats. Um, so I figured the more I, the, the sooner I can get this format into my classroom, the more learning and the deeper the conversations we can have. I wanted to hear from your ninth grade students now. Uh, Destiny, I'll start with you. Tell us about your experience reading uh, the best we could do um what were some of the emotions that were drawn out uh, and the themes that stood out to you uh the emotions drawn out would have been like i guess would it be like i was glad that we were giving more representation to immigrants and people who you know had to deal with all these things in a different country and then had to come over here and deal with even more um it's like I guess giving more chance for us to incorporate ourselves into it, especially if um, if you're from another country immigrating and you get to um, read something that kind of compares, doesn't compare, but, you know, like relates um, kind of like culture shock or, or these stereotypes um, with ourselves. So, uh yeah. And Jeanette, how about you? What was your impression of this book? What stood out to you? Um, <clears throat> what stood out to me the most was probably like how, what um, Ty had to go through as a kid and like what her mother and father had to go through. It really made me question what my mother had to go through coming to America at a young age and, um, it, I had many questions for her that weren't all, always answered because of the trauma she had to go through um, and wasn't comfortable sharing the information with me. Well, Ricardo, it's interesting to hear from both of your students. And before this book, was there a place for students to have these kinds of conversations? Um, before this book, I think in my classroom, there, there were pockets where these conversations were, were being had, but I think the book uh, really acted as a conduit to sustain the conversations. I think it was hard to create that depth where we would talk about maybe 
the how trauma can affect somebody or what makes up a family in quick glimpses. But this book forced us to really, um, like Destiny and Jeanette mentioned, look back into our past and kind of confront uh, things that we wouldn't normally, things that uh, people try and sweep under the rug and, and, and don't want to talk about. Those hard conversations, uh, I think this book helped us have those as a class and kind of like just grow as humans. Mm. Uh, JHD is still with us. JHD, could you explain uh, just briefly, I understand that um, art is also part of, of this work uh, after students have these kinds of important discussions in these classes. And so can you tell us more about how that'll be incorporated? Yes, I mean, I'm going to leave some of that to Caitlin, who I know is coming on later because she's the the brilliant mind behind the options. Um, but I think the one of the main reasons we wanted art to be a, a really significant part of this experience is because, I mean, if you think about anti-bias, anti-racist education, um, if we're really trying to start with the young person um, and each young person and have them truly fulfill their potential, um, then we, we have to make sure that we go back to their most curious and creative selves. Um, there is a, a creative in every single one of us. Um, if you think about who, who we started as little people, um, I can't remember where, where I got this. It's a quotation, but um, I read it recently and it, it just really encapsulates why art is so integral in, in learning and education and specifically in the anti-bias, anti-racist education. But it's this idea that, you know, be, before we, we speak, spoke sentences, we, we sang. Uh, before we were able to write, we drew, we painted. Um, before we were walking, like as soon as we stood, we were bopping around and dancing, right? And so if we're really trying to, to get at um, the fundamental human, the curious, creative person in each of us, um, then, then we need to be, we need to be using art as a, as a, as a part of all education. Uh, Jeanette, who's one of the ninth graders from Bassett High School, I understand you're an artist. And so uh, when we hear about, um, you know, the, the way art will be incorporated uh, into what uh, you and your peers are learning about, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about, you know, some of the plans for the project you hope to work on. Um, the project that I'm hoping to work on is the one where we get to draw um, our parents as their younger selves to understand what they had to go through growing up at a different place and then having to start all over again, coming to um, uh, America or wherever besides their homeland. And I'm really um, excited to start on that art project to figure out how or what trauma my mother had to go through and um, be able to show that through art. Mm. Have you talked with your mom about, you know, what you're learning around this book and your plans and this art project? What's her response, Jeanette? Um, she was very um, curious all of a sudden of why I've started to ask about her past, why I'm so curious to know a lot more about her. And she's very excited to see what I, um, I'm going to be able to do with the art project around this book and like about the past. 
Destiny, how about you? What are your plans for the art project? Uh, I also want to do something that Jenna is talking about. Because I guess it kind of makes me less afraid to talk to my mom about her past. Because um, it's been so normalized for her. And I get to kind of bring it up in a way that won't make it invasive. Um, it's like, I guess I get to know my mom now. Like, I get to know her more, and maybe it will break down a barrier between us and um, maybe get rid of, like, some arguments or I get to see why she does this or that. You know, I get to um, see why her habits are the way that they are and how they got kind of soaked into me and how I can prevent it from soaking into the rest of my life. Hmm. Ricardo, you're still with us. Ricardo Avelo, an English teacher at Basic High School. As you hear your students uh, describe, you know, some of the the projects they they hope to embark on, the questions they're asking about um, themselves, as well as the conversations they're having with a parent. You know, how do you feel? I think this is <clears throat> this is all I could have ever wanted for. Um, I think at the end of the day. I want students to be able to to break down those walls. The, the main, another main theme of this book, and I think it's kind of hard for students to conceptualize because it's again so soaked in us is that American imperialism, that those things that are normalized for us. Um, and it's normal not to ask your parents things. It's normal not to uh, worry about what's going on with them. You're supposed to just worry about yourself. But to know that they are going to start a new wave of kind of parent relationships they can look at t and and learn from their mistakes um i i'm a very proud educator i'm excited to continue to to hopefully teach this book in the future and have them maybe come back to classrooms and and continue to to show off what they're doing because since they're only rising 10th graders they can come back and reinforce this book where it can really be put into the community because what T goes through, we have a large Vietnamese population that immigrated here to our city. It directly affects our city. And once we get on that level where we're talking to all families and all families are starting to be a bit better, a bit more empathetic to each other, that empathy can then maybe cause a sort of uh, rise up where, where families are kind of demanding the same things for their children and, and wanting their, their kids to be reading books that, help them become these full-fledged human beings. JHD, again, is still with us, Jennifer Hekala Diaz, who is the current activist in residence at UConn's Asian and Asian American Studies Institutes. You know, hearing Ricardo and the students talk, this is really powerful. Is this what it means to be culturally responsive, the work that they're doing? Yeah, I mean, um, a quotation from from Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings, who coined culturally relevant pedagogy, which is the foundation of so much about what Ricardo and I are talking about in terms of education is um, we teach what we love, right? So if we truly love all of our children, and if we truly love truth, um, then we have to commit um, to working with, um, not doing things to, not doing things for, but um, working with our young people, with their families, and the many communities that they're a part of um, and really see that power that our young people have. We don't need to give them it, we, they have it and, and really let them lead, lead the way because 
they they really are the the ones we've been waiting for. Mm-hmm. Professional development and resources, again, part of the work this coalition is focusing on. You know, I wanted to bring up uh, that one of the other classes studying uh, this book, uh, I believe, is in Naugatuck. Uh, English teacher Keith Fowler shared that after uh, reading this book in class, uh, you know, it prompted him to research his grandfather's role in the Navy during the Vietnam War and his uncle's estrangement after being a conscientious objector. What's your response to that anecdote? Are you still with us, JHD? Yeah, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. We can hear you now. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I think uh, Keith, another really brilliant educator, I think that this is the the self work that that teachers need to do, right? We we need to spend the time um, on our own awareness and analysis of of our own history, um, getting to know it really well, and how it intersects with all the other histories that make up the history of our country and our world. And um, it, I think that anecdote just shows that it, it's not really an isolated anecdote. Like that's that's how Keith is as a teacher. He's always thinking more and more deeply about what he's doing with the students and why it matters. And so this work is being done again through this uh, coalition, uh, but on an even higher level of curriculum planning, the, the State Department of Education's creating this new set of social studies standards that's going to roll out, I believe, next fall. And so, again, when we think about how you know all this work is going to um, um, be used together again to inform this mandate in 2025, what are the next steps from your perspective, JHD? Um, well, we're not, you know, while we're wrapping up an academic year and people are wrapping up these 10 different units and 10 different courses in 10 different schools across Connecticut, um, it, it's not an end, right? Because like Ricardo mentioned, um, some of these very same teachers are going to take what they did this year and improve upon it next year and change it up for, for the young people that are in their classrooms, right? Um, and then we have other teachers who... Um, couldn't join us this year who really want to be a part of it next year. And and this is just for one novel and one unit, right? So the fact, though, that we're going to have so many iterations that are going to continue to um, be changed up to to be um, the best version of the unit for the students that are in the room that particular year um, is really exciting because it it just shows that um, teachers, when you support them, can really do the work with students to to co-create the type of learning that our all of our students deserve um, and giving them some autonomy to do that work with students. Um, it's I believe the the way we we need to go in order to ensure that every student gets what they deserve. Um, so in terms of next steps, there's those natural next steps just around this unit. Um, I was actually so, my big co-conspirator in this is, of course, Professor Jason Chang from UConn, um, and we were just talking yesterday about next steps. You know, is it working on other units at the K-8 level? Um, is it finding ways for teachers to support teachers, like having people come as a group from a school? I mean, there's so many different 
facets to teacher professional development that um, I think we can build out to really ensure that that what they feel supported um, so that they're able to then um, create the types of learning experiences with their students um, that we want to see across our state for every single young person. I want to take time to thank Ricardo Alvelo, again, an English teacher at Bassick High School in Bridgeport, and his students, Destiny Melendez and Jeanette Espinoza. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to keep, keep talking to JHD Jennifer Hekula Diaz. And coming up after the break, we're going to hear from a local artist working with these students. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. We've been learning this hour about a group of teachers and students working to build content and resources for a soon-to-be mandate in Connecticut public schools to teach Asian American and Pacific Islander studies. The students have been reading Tibui's book, The Best We Could Do, and they'll have the opportunity to work with local artists to help them process the book through art making. One of those artists is joining us now on Zoom, Caitlin Tan Fong, based in New Haven, who also grew up in Connecticut. Caitlin is a multimedia artist and art educator. Welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So what's your approach to art making? And when I say you're an art educator, you know, what really speaks to you and, you know, drew you to this project that we've been learning about all hour? Oh, wow. Um, where to start? <laughs> Uh, echoing what JHD said earlier about why art, like why is art the vehicle, especially for this project and with anti-racist, anti-bias practices, I think about how art is what makes us human. When Whenever we commemorate big events or how we cope with difficult moments in life, it comes down to art, right? We listen to music, we sing songs, we hang decorations, we have poets perform, we dance, we go to theaters, um, we turn to literature and cinema, the list just goes on. And it's through art that we can express and deeply feel. We can connect to each other and we can heal. Um, art has so much power as both an active process of creating the art, but also experiencing it as a viewer. Um, and so what brings me to this work, not only is my passion for art, but just getting excited about the limitless nature of art, because the projects that I have helped develop for the best we could do, um, bring it to schools. It They're meant to generate lots of different outcomes. So I, th I understand that um, the work that you're doing with students to process this book um, included coming up with prompts. And so can you tell us more about that? And when you read this book, uh, how uh, your feelings informed the work that you're doing with the students, Caitlin? Absolutely. Um, I came up with five different art options. The first one was to create a quote card with a question you, you've never asked your parents. So I found it really interesting to hear that as a theme come up with um, the students that were speaking earlier. And something that I thought about was like how this could be a way to confront difficult truths. And I was inspired by the post-secret format of creating uh, or collaging images and just focusing on a question that could possibly create a connection with 
their parents or another caretaker in their life and potentially embolden or inspire them to ask the question. Mm-hmm. Um, another option I had was to, was considering how Tibui has talked about um, there being minimal artifacts in refugees' lives. And so how can we reposition or recontextualize an object or objects from our childhood in a photographic form? Um, I was thinking about how creating the artwork and through the process of interacting with the objects itself was a way to connect with childhood. And it could bring up memories, just moving and placing that object in a new space, both physically and temporally. And especially since so much of the art and media we consume now is through social media, like Instagram. I thought about how that could be both personally meaningful for students and engaging for them to do. Mm. Um, I have three other options and I can keep going, but... Yeah, briefly, uh, Caitlin. Sure. Um, Another option I thought about was how Tibui uses a monochromatic palette and how the use of color carries so much meaning and symbolism. So focusing on a single color, we get to explore all the tints and shades and tones more deeply. And I thought about how students could think about using a single color to reconstruct a memory and illustrate that themselves. Um, Another option, which Destiny and Jeanette both talked about wanting to do, is the drawing of a parent or a guardian or caretaker as a child. Um, In an interview I was watching of Tibui, she talks about how drawing anyone as a child is a healing process that can allow us to love and forgive them. Um, And I hope this isn't a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen Turning Red, but we see a similar scene where May comforts her mother as uh, various younger versions of herself. And so I was just like making those connections, how visually interesting that could be as a project, but also super healing and create a bridge to that other adult. Mm. You know, I mentioned that you grew up in Connecticut. And when we think about just this broader conversation about, you know, why it's important to teach uh, this history, too, in public schools uh, to help make the invisible visible. I'm wondering if you could reflect a little on what it was like to grow up in Connecticut. And now that you're involved in this work uh, to helping inform uh, so many uh, students from many different backgrounds. Yes, definitely. Um, As an Asian American educator, right, I didn't grow up with a lot of people who looked like me. And it wasn't until, so I had my first teacher of color in middle school, And then I had my first black teacher in high school, my senior year. And so as a teacher of color myself, right, I feel so honored and blessed to be in the position I'm in, um, to be one of the first educational experiences that my students have um, is is so magical. Um, And so that's something that constantly brings me back to the work is being the teacher that I needed when I was younger. Um, And also the research just shows that all students benefit when they have access to teachers of color. So that's something that really excites me um, as a a person of color in the position I'm in, but also just the work that we're doing to bring these histories and narratives to light. JHD is still with us, Jennifer Hakula Diaz. JHD, did you want to respond to what Caitlin shared? 
Oh, she shared so many things. Which part? <laughs> She's just, I mean, I've had the fortune of working with Caitlin on, on different things for a few years now. And um, she's just so thoughtful, even just like listening to her describe the projects again um, and make that connection to turning red. Cause when she was telling me, you know, telling me here's, here's what I think we, we could have um, the teachers do with their students. She didn't mention that. So I don't know if Caitlin, you would watch turning red since that like meeting we had a while ago about the different options, but that right there is, Yes, <laughs> that that right that that comment right there um, is going to stay with me for a really long time because, and, and I had that experience when I watched Turning Red too, and I just did like I, I didn't make the connection quite to that degree till you just said it. Um, so yeah, is there a particular part you would like me to respond to? <laughs> because all of it, I mean, this is why I said she was brilliant before. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so fortunate to get to work with Caitlin, Ricardo, Keith. And all the other all the other teachers um, that are a part of this project because each of them brings so many things and they just keep keep bringing it um, every time that we meet and talk about what we're trying to do with students. We've run out of time, but it's been a pleasure to learn about this work. Again, a JHD, a Chief of Talent Operations in New Haven Promise, co-founder of AAPI New Haven, and the current activist in residence at UConn's Asian and Asian American Studies Institute. We're hearing that the governor will be signing uh, this legislation requiring AAPI studies by the 2025-26 school year. So uh, another update, uh, hopefully, in the next few months about uh, the work that's being done. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. And also thank you to Caitlin Tan Fung, a multimedia artist here uh, based in New Haven. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. We'll be back tomorrow. Mm-hmm.